It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. As we record this, the Cuyahoga County government is in a meeting about what to do about the new Cuyahoga County Jail. And we have a couple of stories to talk about pertaining to that on Today in Ohio. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. And Layla, we're going to have you working on the jail. Do we have a looming civil war in Cuyahoga County government? because of the county council's mysterious persistence in buying a toxic site for the new county jail. How are the sides forming on this, Layla, and where is the battle line? Well, yesterday we saw this unbelievable development in the story with County Prosecutor Mike O'Malley and Public Defender Colin Sweeney and Common Pleas Administrative Judge Brendan Sheehan seeking to hire outside counsel to potentially take legal action against the county if they take a single step toward the purchase of that controversial, toxic jail site on Transportation Road. Since Sheehan is the administrative judge, he signed off yesterday on the request to the court for permission to seek outside counsel representation. And the reason that's needed is because under normal circumstances, O'Malley's office would represent the county. So these three, O'Malley, Sweeney, and Sheehan, all sit on the executive steering committee, which, as you said, they're meeting today. They've been the guiding guiding the planning process for deciding whether to build a new jail or renovate the current one. And that group is meeting to cast their votes on whether to recommend the purchase of this transportation road site to the county. That vote was supposed to have happened back in April, but it was delayed while they sought this fresh analysis on whether the current jail could be renovated. And they should be right now hearing that presentation. It's expected that O'Malley and Sweeney and Sheehan are going to vote no on buying the transportation road site, which is enough to enough dissent to just torpedo that vote. But those three fully expect county council to go rogue after that and vote to buy, buy the site for the jail anyway later this month. And that's why they're posturing for this lawsuit. And at the heart of their beef here is the fact that the county is poised to dump all these millions into buying a new jail on a site that's loaded with carcinogenic benzene, nonetheless. And they're gearing up to extend the county's quarter percent sales tax for the next 40 years to pay for it. And yet the county's claiming there won't be any money left over to renovate the rest of the Justice Center, which the county has just allowed to fall completely into disrepair despite a nearly decade-old report prescribing what the county needed to do to keep that building from falling apart. And they really did very little of it since then. O'Malley told Caitlin Durbin yesterday that he thinks the county should take all the money they've been squandering in the slush funds from the ARPA, <laughs> which I've heard this theory, you know, I've heard this argument for, and just marshal it into the Justice Center immediately. So that's where they are. And and the 50 plus million that they're wasting on the MedMart. The, the, the interesting thing is, is that that O'Malley and company are so convinced that the county council is going to buy this land against the wishes of the steering committee, even though both candidates for county executives say that when they get into office, they will not build the jail there. It, it really is a mystery why the county is having this vote today when a new executive is going to stop it. 
So if they vote to buy this land and they consummate the sale, they're squandering county money because they're going to sell it, even if it's at a loss. That's the part I don't get. Now, not only are they doing it with the county executive saying no, they're doing it in the face of kind of an unprecedented lawsuit. I mean, we have one branch of government suing the other to stop inmates from sleeping on top of benzene and to get updates to a courthouse. I cannot I cannot think of a single legitimate reason for them to vote to buy this property yeah. today. It just does not make any well, sense. Yesterday, the county spokeswoman, uh, you know, shot back and said, you know, it's too bad these guys have delayed the process so long because now the cost of building a jail has shot through the roof. And so I think that they're really drinking the Kool-Aid on on how much the cost has escalated because of delay, the delay of, of you know, taking time to make a prudent decision on this. Um, but they could argue that because the county and, and Armand Budish did nothing on the courthouse for eight right. years, nine mm-hmm. years, those, those costs, costs have, have gone, gone up. up. I mean, right. costs always go up. That's a bogus argument they always make to get urgency into the, the oh, the, the, it's just going to go up. Costs always go up. I mean, that's part of part of life, but that doesn't mean you should make a bad decision. I, th- we're less than three months away from a changeover of the administration. That's what doesn't make sense. And look, we said this months ago, right? We, we floated this idea. A lawsuit only needs to gum up the works for three months. That's not hard to do in Cuyahoga County yeah. courts, because if it's gummed up until January 1st, the new executive takes office and just stops the thing in its tracks and nothing happens. I keep wondering though, Layla, does somebody profit if we get to a land sale? Is there a contract involved here that has some kind of land sale benchmark where somebody gets a payday? I've wondered that too. And so we are, we'll see, we'll check. <laughs> that would explain it because nothing else makes sense about making this decision before there's a new county executive identified. Um, and only if somebody profits from it would this make any sense. O'Malley does hope that that even the threat of this lawsuit, that maybe it wouldn't even take the lawsuit, but just the threat of it would be enough to get counsel to snap to their senses and not vote to to consummate the sale. It was truly outrageous when they came up and said, we're not going to have any money for the Justice Center after voting to spend $54 million on the MedMart and after spending $66 million in slush funds. I mean, I can understand why Brendan Sheehan, O'Malley, and others would be upset about that because the place has been leaking forever. The elevators are a nightmare to, to, to go in. You covered courts. Well, you know how bad that oh, man, building is. It's the is. most depressing building in Cleveland. All right. It's today in Ohio. Coincidentally, just a few hours before the story broke on the potential jail lawsuit, we published a story in which county officials go through the gymnastics of logic to support making jail prisoners sleep on top of benzene. Why does the county council think that this is the good site, Laura? I love that you use gymnastics because there are definitely some leaps here in this uh, maze of steps that Caitlin Durbin laid out. So the search started in October 2020, and the county mapped every property over 25 acres in the whole county. They removed sites they deemed impossible to purchase, such as parks, cemetery, churches, or schools, and then they turned up massive amounts of parcels. But somehow, Allegro real estate brokers whittled the list to 28. I'm not exactly sure, but that's what they did. And then there's a second consultant, CBRE, that used a pre-approved selection criteria to narrow the list even further. And then they 
expanded the site size to 40 acres, time and distance to the courthouse downtown, proximity to hospitals and emergency services, access to public transportation, environmental risks, and the ease of acquisition, including potential relocation of the existing owners. Also, cost. This narrowed to 10. They somehow shrunk that list to five, but they didn't explain that. I'm not sure how environmental risk didn't automatically disqualify the transport road site, but that left them, all of a sudden they said all these reasons why other places wouldn't work. The Slavic Village wouldn't work. They'd have all this pressure from neighbors and that left the transport road site. Yeah, I, I it just kind of boggles the mind that they could go through all of these steps and still end up with the toxic site. I love the point in the story where a project or a piece of property was offered in uh, Garfield Heights at the end. And it never says, which is not toxic, doesn't have any contamination. It never says why that didn't work. They just said, yeah, we got this one, but we think this one's better. Also, I would like to say they paid two consultants to come up with this list and all like they had another viable site that all they had to do is, hey, does anybody want to sell us your land? And they got another viable site. Like how much money did we spend on these (laughs) consultants in the first place to put together all these PowerPoints to come up with this site? I know it's very, it's been a very fishy process and I wish I could understand it. I keep trying to come up with in my head a legitimate path to where we, where we are and I, I can't do it and it'll be interesting to see what happens today. It's today in Ohio. Let's stay on the subject of toxic sites. We've got an interesting lawsuit involving such a site in our much beloved national park. If for some big dollars, Lisa, why is the former owner of a polluting paper mill suing the federal government over the site the mill once occupied? Yeah, the the group that's suing is Paddock Enterprises, LLC, and they were one of the previous of several owners of this former paper mill site in the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. Uh, In the suit, Paddock says that the government, the EPA in particular, is forcing them to pay $45 million to remediate the site. This has been going on for years. They had years of negotiations on who was going to clean it up, who was responsible when that didn't bear fruit, they filed this suit. They also are claiming that uh, they stopped Ohio from cleaning up the site, the EPA, back in 1984 to get a better price. So let's do a little bit of history here. In 1905, the Jate Paper Company sat on this site. It's between uh, the Ohio and Erie Canal, Brandywine Creek, and the Cuyahoga River. Um, They sold it in 1951 to another company, um, and then the plaintiff bought it, and they owned the land till 1967. Then there was another group in there, Tecumseh, that owned it until it was bought by the EPA, the national EPA, in 1984 and 85 in two separate buys for $4.7 million. So they opened that up to the public. But they didn't test this land for contamination until 2004 through 2002 through 2020. So they restricted public access to the site in in 2017. And the Ohio EPA urged the federal EPA not to buy this land because of leaky oil wells and other pollutants on the site. Do do we know which of those many owners did the pollution? Well, you know, paper companies are terrible with pollution. So I'm sure the pollution stretches back to 1905. I mean, it was a going concern all the way up until 1967. 
And so they're, the EPA is feeling as well the last paper company to own it. They're vulnerable, liable. But that's for the what's sins. interesting. Paddock Enterprises was not the last company to own it. You know, they're called the successor company. They owned the land until 1967, and then it went to a group called Tecumseh Container Corporation or Corrugated Paper. And you know, so I. I the the whole chain of you know ownership is kind of muddled here for me, and maybe that's why they're filing the lawsuit. Maybe Tecumseh no longer exists. I really don't know, but they also say you know they want their the lawsuit demands that the government pay uh, uh, Paddock for any work that needs to be done on the site, and they're demanding that the court rule that they have no further obligations to clean up that site. Well, there is a due process question here. I mean, you you would seem to think that the government would have to prove that the, the company they're going after to clean it up was the transgressor. And I, it doesn't sound like they can prove that. And so I'm not sure, I'm not sure that this company is off base and saying, come on, there's no, we didn't do it. You know, we didn't pollute it. There's no evidence that we did. Why do we have to spend $45 million or whatever the price is to clean it up? It's a fascinating lawsuit. I just didn't realize that a big section of the park was that polluted. Well, I didn't either. And, you know, of course, they didn't know until 2004 until they really started testing. But yeah, whenever you have a former paper mill, there's always a lot of, you know, bad stuff in the soil behind after a paper mill. I've ridden my bike past this many times because it's in that, you know, right by Brandywine Ski Resort where the old Dover Lake water park was. And we just used to love to like crane our necks off of the path and and look at it. I had no idea. I mean, I've never like explored it, but I didn't realize how toxic it actually was. And and Ohio had told the feds, you don't want to buy this. Mm -hmm. This is polluted. Kind of like what they did with the jail. Like they looked at the toxic site and said, yeah, we don't want to build there. Okay, interesting story. It's today in Ohio. Abortion continues to be a polarizing issue as elections approach, as we've discussed a bunch of times. Reporter Laura Hancock examined the timing of abortions in Ohio in the most recent year available finding most were early in a pregnancy. Lisa, what are the numbers? Yeah, lots of interesting numbers in this report on 2021 abortions by the Ohio Department of Health. Overall, in 2021, there were 21,813 abortions. That's up 7% from 2020, and they're not sure why, because abortions have been declining over the years, but they've been tracking these numbers since 1976. The all-time high for abortions was 1983, when there were 45,000 performed in Ohio. In uh, in the 2021 uh, report, Cuyahoga County had the most. They had uh, 4,839 abortions. Uh, That's up slightly from the year before. And when you're looking at the timing of abortions, most of them were in the first nine weeks. About 60.5% were in the first nine weeks. 26%, nine to 12 weeks of pregnancy. 10.5% from 13 to 18 weeks. 1.4 from 19 to 20 weeks. And then just, you know, less than a percent, 20 weeks and above. So most of them are getting caught in the first nine weeks, which kind of surprises me. I would have thought nine to 12 would be the higher number. Um, 538 abortions in Ohio were under the age of 18, the patient was. 54 of them were children, 15 years and under. But most of them, about 62%, were in the 25 to 55-year-old age bracket. So about 13,500 abortions in that, in that age bracket. 
when the Dobbs decision was coming down and we were doing all of the abortion reporting, my memory is, is that we had reported that the numbers had been dropping steadily year over year over year. But in this year, it went up. And they don't know why, because, you know, obviously we didn't have the Dobbs decision in 2021, but they think the pandemic you know, may have, you know, caused some different, you know, dynamics in families, you Mm -hmm. know, with a pregnancy that happened. So, uh, yeah. And they say that this, and this is kind of sobering, that this report from 2021 could be the last state report on a full year of legal abortion numbers. Because as we know, of course, the fetal heartbeat law took effect right after the Dobbs decision in late June, although it is currently on hold until mid-October. So, um, and also just interesting too, the numbers of white and black women seeking abortions was just about the same. Slightly, uh, slightly more uh, black women, about 9,446 9, black women got abortions. That's 43%. And then 8,784 white women got abortions at about 40%. Interesting. It's today in Ohio. The lake sturgeon is a monster of a fish growing up to five feet long, but it was largely wiped out in Lake Erie because of pollution and other factors. Laura, is it coming back in a big way? Yes, but not as big as it ever had been before. They're talking about 30,000 sturgeon in the lake now, including in this Detroit St. Clair River system. And at the peak, they had either about 300,000 or 1.1 million. I realize those are very different numbers, but that was those are estimates uh, and separate models. So they're trying to rebuild this population in Lake Erie, and they are basically stocking them in the Maumee River. So they're going to do that again on October 8th in Toledo. And so far, they've put more than 7,000 fingerlings released into the river. And the results are better than they had imagined. There's a survival rate of 80 to 97%. Now they're trying to study whether that those fish will return to the mommy to spawn and create a self-sustaining population. But it's going to take a long time to know that because it takes 10 to 15 years for a male sturgeon to sexually mature and 15 to 25 years for females. So like check back in a decade. Well, and they used to do it in the Cuyahoga, which is a little bit surprising because the story said they need rocky, bouldery bottoms. Mm -hmm. And The Cuyahoga is largely silted up. Is there anywhere along the Cuyahoga that has the kind of bottom that you need for this? Well, they are studying it. They're looking at the water velocity. They need a flow rate of about a half a meter to one meter per second. And that river bottom with the rocks from four to eight inches in size. But think about all of the technology they've put in the Cuyahoga to encourage fish population, like those fish rest stops they put along the, the sides of the the walls on the metal there. And so I don't know what they could do. Obviously, the Cuyahoga is regularly dredged, but so is the Maumee River. And they're seeing such high survival rates there. They're wondering if they can do it in the Cuyahoga. I I just, the idea of a five foot fish. And they live to a hundred years old. Like these are like ancient. (laughs) I I just, and they had in the story, it said the EPA was out fishing for walleye or something to do a study and they got one of these and it shocked them. I just, I can't imagine reeling something like that in, in Lake Erie. I try to pretend they're not there when I'm swimming (laughs) in Lake Erie. (laughs) Although these are mostly uh, in like the Western basin and the far East over by the Niagara river in Buffalo. So the central area has not been home to these surgeon. 
But they're bottom feeders too. It's not like they're gonna they're going to uh, injure a swimmer. <laughs> the sewage is much more of a danger to you than the lake sturgeon. It's today in Ohio. Let's talk about another fishy story. How did a couple of fishermen who have won repeatedly in Lake Erie walleye contests get caught cheating? And how prevalent is cheating, Laura? This is such a crazy story, and it is going viral in part because of there are some very um, uh, vivid videos that you can see of this happening. Um, happened on Saturday. Jacob Runyon of Cleveland and his tournament fishing partner, Chase Kaminsky of Herod Hermitage, Pennsylvania. They were a part of this elite field of 32 angler teams. They were competing for 30 grand in various prizes in the Lake Erie Walleye Trail Championship in Cleveland Harbor. And they went to get weighed in and they had their five fish. You had to have the the biggest, heaviest five fish to win. And the fish looked like they'd be regular four pounders, but they were coming up like, I think 30 pounds total, huge. And so the tournament organizer cut them open and found these sinkers, these weights in the middle of the fish that had been stuffed down their throats and then other walleye fillets wrapped around them so they didn't like clank against each other. It is mind boggling to think of. And this was like the third tournament in a row that they had won and they'd been bragging to everybody that they were unbeatable. And wow, it got really rowdy. I mean, a guy like went and shut himself up in his truck because he didn't want to get attacked by these people. And, and police are investigating. It's huge. Well, I, there's a couple of things. One, it's really sad that fishing, which is something where you sit in a boat and commune with nature, has turned to something where people are, are corrupting like this. Second is, they're morons. You, you, <laughs> you can't win every time. And, and it, 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 they didn't just weigh down their fish. They nearly doubled the weight of what was expected. So as soon as the judge looked at what was supposed to be a four pound fish and it came in at seven pounds, they were instantly alert. Like this isn't right. We've got to check this. So these guys were numbskulls in getting caught. The videos are kind of hilarious because they're, you're right. They're vivid and it's, you better get out of here. And it's crazy because in 2021 in the fall brawl, which is this massive walleye tournament that goes on for weeks and weeks in the fall in Lake Erie, it'll start up again in a couple of weeks here. And I've gone fishing for this and you know, these like camaraderie and like, you know, it's like this very cool thing that a Cleveland guy started and they've got food drives and all this good stuff. So they got disqualified last year because they failed a lie detector test. Jake Runyon did. So, and at we had Darcy Egan, he wrote a story about it at the time. He's a freelancer for us. Um, he said, I, I knew we had to get legal counsel and fight our disqualification in the fall brawl. Our reputation means the world to us and we would never cheat. I mean, so not only are these guys cheating, but they've gotten caught before and disqualified. They keep on cheating and they're just like, full of bravado. Like we would never do that. We're the best. It's, it's just mind boggling. These yeah, guys. I, I heard from some people that were talking about other ways they cheat by putting ice cubes in because they melt. But what some of the saddest things I heard yesterday, I heard from people that said, you know, my husband has been a competitive fisherman for years back to the days when there was no technology. Mm-hmm. He used his instincts, what he knew of the lake, he knew where the spots were, and that that was much more sporting. You had to use your sense and your experience. Now she says with all the technology, 
you don't need any experience. You use the fish finders and all the different things that are available. And then you add to that the cheating, the people that are bringing in already trapped fish. It, she said it's just turned competitive fishing into something that's not real anymore. Well, and it, it, there are so much money in this. I mean, this was a 30 grand purse that we're talking about, but the fall brawl for the last couple of years has given away boats to the top two winners. And these boats are tricked out with everything you could need, all the technology, and they're worth a hundred grand. And it's because sponsors really want in on this because they get their name on it. And fishing is a big business. People spend a lot of money on this. And so I, I guess the temptation is there. Okay, it's today in Ohio. All right, this is my favorite story of the day. The Onion has weighed in to support a guy who Parma police arrested for running a Parma satirical site. The opinion is brilliant in that it is loaded with parody and satire while making a really serious point. Layla, I hope you read this and enjoyed it as much as I did. I did. This is the best story of the day. So you have the backstory here. It's about Anthony Novak from Parma. He created this fake Facebook page that looked just like the Parma police's official page. On it, he had a post that said the department planned to host an event that gave pedophiles a chance to be removed from the state's sex offender registry if they could solve puzzles and quizzes. And he had another post that said the department was recruiting new officers, but that minorities were strongly encouraged not to apply. So Parma police arrested this guy, and he was later acquitted of fourth-degree felony disrupting a public service, and he sued. The Sixth Circuit ruled in favor of the police, but his lawyers are taking the case to the U.S. Supreme Court, arguing that other courts have ruled differently in similar cases. Well, The Onion, which I hope all listeners know is the awesome satirical news website, heard of this case, and they filed a brief asking the high court to take it up, and it is just exactly what you would expect from The Onion, and so much more because it is both hilarious and makes very strong legal arguments. In their brief, after bragging about having 4.3 trillion daily readers <laughs> and supporting <laughs> right. more than 350,000 full and part-time journalism jobs in its numerous news bureaus and manual labor camps stationed around the world, The Onion says quite simply that permitting the jailing of a humorist for making fun of the government threatens The Onion's business model. So they have a stake in this and they say that for parody to work, it has to mimic the original. You can't let on to your audience from the onset that they that what they're experiencing isn't real or it bursts the balloon. It's not funny. It doesn't work. It strips the parody of the very thing that makes it function. So if I may quote from, from their brief, this is one of my favorite passages. It says, tu stultus es, you are dumb. These three Latin words have been the Onion's motto and guiding light since it was founded in 1988 as America's finest news source, leading its writers toward the paper's singular purpose of pointing out that its readers are deeply gullible people. The Onion's motto is central to this brief for two important reasons. First, it's Latin, and The Onion knows that the federal judiciary is staffed entirely <laughs> by total Latin dorks. They quote Catullus in the original Latin in Chambers, they sweetly whisper stare decisis into their spouse's ears. They mutter qui bono under their breath while picking up after their neighbor's dogs. So the onion knew that unless it pointed to a suitably Latin rallying cry, its brief would be operating far outside the court's vernacular. <laughs> so it's just it's just so loaded with with just humor Why? and and charm and and wit. And I loved every second of reading this brief. 
My favorite part was the part about Jonathan yes. Swift, where they go into they they let up set up the problem, and it ends yes. with you know eating the children. Can I read that part to you? Said, it says here's <laughs> here's an example. It says yeah. assume that you're this is their example of parody. Assume that you're reading what appears to be a boring economics paper about the Irish overpopulation crisis of the eighteenth eighth century, and yet. Strangely enough, it seems to advocate for solving the, the dilemma by cooking and eating babies. That seems a bit cruel until you realize that, in fact, you're reading a modest proposal. To be clear, The Onion is not trying to compare itself to Jonathan Swift. Its writers are far more talented, and their output will be read <laughs> long after that hack Swift's has been lost to the sands of time. Still, The Onion and its writers share with Swift the common goal of replicating a form precisely in order to critique it from within. <laughs> yeah, I, th- this was this is brilliant because in the end... They are making a really serious argument about freedom of speech and defending the First Amendment, but they do it with such wit and and grace. I, I it was my favorite moment of the day, spending time with that with that brief. I hope the Supreme Court takes it up, and I hope. I, although, is anybody on that court have a sense of humor? <laughs> I don't know. I was. I just don't see that. Sam Alito ever laughing. You know, it's just not the kind of thing that he I would loved. Laugh at they himself. also have this. Uh, they 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 use as an example the the fake the mock headline supreme supreme court rules supreme court rules <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and they kind of go into what that story might say and how they would quote the the justices in, in a story like that <laughs> as an example of parody and i just i hope that i uh, just based on this brief alone they should take this case <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the lawyers writing it must have had a good time. We've published the whole document in our story on cleveland.com. It's become national news. You can read it just about anywhere. It's today in Ohio, and we're done for a Tuesday. Lots of good stuff to talk about tomorrow. We'll be talking about what the county council did with the jail, if they buy the toxic site or not. Lots to discuss there. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thank you for listening. We'll be back Wednesday. Wednesday.